0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to M Pavilion. Um, Sorry we're running just a tad late, but I've just literally got off a plane. Um, It's my great pleasure to welcome some very wonderful artists sitting on the stage tonight, and um, one artist not sitting on the stage at the very far end. So Spiros um, will come and talk to us once we've rotated our people through. Uh, My name's David Cross, and I'm the curator of a project that took place last November out in the wonderful western suburbs of Melbourne called Treatment. And Treatment was a public art project uh, developed jointly by Deakin University, the city of Wyndham in Melbourne Water. Uh, and it was a, a beautiful and wonderful opportunity to uh, invite a number of artists to respond to an 11,000 hectare site in the western suburbs that many people had not been to or, or have not engaged with. But it is an incredibly rich and complex site. Uh, and it straddles a number of different histories and contexts. Uh, It's obviously the largest sewage plant in Australia, for one thing. It's also one of the largest bird sanctuaries in the world. Uh, It has a whole raft of different uh, aspects to it. And so the opportunity of being able to develop a curatorial project was uh, incredibly exciting. And uh, we began the project maybe 15 or 16 months ago and uh, I invited six artists along with my co-curator, Cameron Bishop, sitting here to spend uh, a significant research period of time in situ uh, developing a project that they chose that was appropriate. So the brief was pretty challenging to them because an 11,000 hectare site is not something that's easy to engage with, as we could understand. But they did so in a really interesting and complex way. Uh, And one of the key aspects of the project was, for those that weren't there and didn't see the work was that it was experienced entirely on a bus. So that was another of the constraints or the curatorial frames, if you like, that because of the security nature of the site, uh, everybody who came to experience the work needed to do so on an official bus tour. So the bus was a really important element, and it was something that the artists needed to think through as to how they would respond uh, and pick up on the aspect of the bus. And each of them did it in very particular ways. Uh, And again, they're gonna invite them to talk to you about it tonight. So the format will be very simple, be- beyond a very brief introduction from me, just to talk a little bit about the project and how it came about. I'd then like to invite each of the artists. There's five of the six artists are here tonight. Unfortunately, Taisha Noble is in Berlin doing a residency, so she can't join us. Um, and of course, we don't have visuals, so we're going to rely on the incredibly eloquent uh, and rich vocabularies of the artists to try and set the picture for you. Can I just get a, a quick indication, how many people here saw the project? Okay, so we've got a smattering of people that saw it. And because many people here didn't see it, we'll try and explain it to you uh, in the clearest way that we can. All right, so just very briefly, in terms of the curatorial element of the project, I was really interested in trying to think through how we could engage with a number of the elements of the site. I talked about the bird-watching element. I talked about the fact that the sewage farm, it's also got an incredibly complex methane capture facility. Uh, there's all these different elements to the site that we need to think through, but front and centre was the fact that in the middle of this site is an abandoned township called Cockerock. And Cockerock is effectively now about three or four buildings, but in its heyday, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, was a thriving township. I think it got up to about 700 people. Uh, it had sporting facilities, had a football team, as Shane will talk to you about. Uh, it had a whole raft of swimming pools, it had schools. And then, of course, with the advent of mechanisation and industrial change, the need to actually live on site became less prevalent, so people from that area moved out into the other areas of Werribee. And they left this incredibly... uh, It's like a ghost town, in a sense, with only a small smattering of buildings left, one of which was the water tower that Megan Evans uh, worked in. And the football oval was still there, but as Shane will tell you, it was in a very dishevelled state. So, effectively, Cocker Rock was... uh, It hadn't hadn't been... done up in any way, shape or form and what was great about the treatment project is that we used it as an opportunity and Melbourne Water used an opportunity to spend some money on turning some of these incredible facilities uh, with incredible histories back into a slightly better state of repair and hopefully that's a process that will continue on. So Cockerock was really in a sense one of the focuses of the project uh, and a number of the um, artworks took place there. It has this incredible legacy. Catherine Bell will talk a little bit about her project with the swimming pool, uh, and the ways in which she transformed the old swimming pool uh, into an incredibly different context for her project. Um, And yeah, so the bus tour itself began at the information center, and uh, Spiros Panagarakis' work took place there. And then we moved across the course of the site, uh, unfolding each work piece by piece. It was a hugely challenging enterprise to try and make the whole thing come together uh, because we had 90 minutes for the bus journey uh, and we needed to get through five different bus journeys each day. So ultimately, the project ran across two Saturdays in November uh, and the audience were pretty much ushered on and ushered off bus a little bit like clockwork. So on one hand, the challenge of making work in those constraints is that you can't just walk around and aim, you know, aimlessly experience the work. As you choose to, we needed to get people around the site with some sort of uh, precision, I guess. So there was a challenge for us to think through: how can we make artworks that happen quickly, without happening too quickly? Uh, how was it the audience could engage discreetly with each component without feeling like they blurred with the next artwork? All these things were something that I think was a really significant challenge. Uh, And what I think is a credit to the artists was the ingenious ways that they kind of had to deal with a constraint like that. I mean, most artists would usually be making a work around which the audience would turn up and they would engage with it for as long as they chose to. Whereas in in this instance, uh, we clearly had to make it quite a tight turnaround time. Let's turn my phone off. So the idea of beginning at the Information Centre, um, we moved through each of the projects uh, and we moved out from Cockerock, which was where a number of the works happened. Uh, we, we went to uh, a number of the facilities, the Odor Control Facility, uh, and then the work concluded at the end uh, out on the sewage ponds themselves. So uh, Tayshia's work I'll talk a little bit about at the end if we get some time. So fundamentally, this project was a really interesting one for me as a curator because it was really trying to engage with the particular context of the place. So it was very much responding to the context I was talking about before, the engineering aspect of the site, the ecological aspect of the site, but the cultural history of the site. And ultimately, a number of the artists were particularly interested in looking at histories that were no longer there or histories that had had effectively been eroded or forgotten and chose this as an opportunity to resuscitate or revive or bring back uh, these cultural aspects. Um, and so that might be a good, uh, a good moment to segue to Shane McGrath, who's sitting to my left. I'll introduce okay. them each, each way. So Shane uh, did an extraordinary project uh, with the Hereford's Football Club, which was the, the name of the Cockerock football team, the old Metro Farm team, which played its last game, I think, in 1964. Uh, the Oval was... Barely an oval when we saw it. It had goalposts. They weren't very white. They weren't very straight. And the change rooms were in an incredible state of disrepair. But in his uh, his wisdom, Shane saw something in that particular site. So Shane, I'll pass over to you, and you can talk to us about the worm.
1: Okay. Thank you, David. Um, oh, thanks. Thanks, sir. Um As I have a tendency to waffle on quite a bit, just to introduce the process, I've written it down just so I can try and keep to my time. So, um, so. Uh, When I would tell people about the project I was working on at the Western Treatment Plant in Werribee, the most common reply was, where? And I'd say the poo farm, reluctantly. Oh yeah, 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 I know the poo farm. (laughs) So um, ignorance, or a type of ignorance, became this thread that ran through the project. I was ignorant of the Western Treatment Plant in Werribee, as well as any of its history, and I was pleasantly surprised when shown what remained of the abandoned town of Cockerock, located in the heart of the WTP. Um, Even more surprising was the the feature that dominated the site, the surviving football oval, as David has mentioned, with its goalposts and the change rooms that were still intact. Uh, Immediately, I, I pictured players taking to the field and the restaging of an historical game. However, two problems almost immediately came to mind. First, the reality of ambition versus budget, a very unsexy thought to have, but a pragmatic one. And secondly, conceptually it wouldn't be enough to simply have a bunch of blokes repeatedly kicking a footy around in front of a busload of audience members and call it a day. No, there'd need to be a bit more than that, but I was confident a bit of archaeological digging would uncover some treasure. So who used to play there? What was the history and significance of the team that once called this stinky oval home until 1964? Very little at first was available to me as, I'd had, uh, had to go, as all I had to go on was a few black and white photos and maybe a team name, the Sewer Rats. That name was proved to be wrong. Uh, so it wasn't a great start. So in order to um, unearth some rich history to use as a de- departure point, I began my search to track down everyone that, or anyone that once lived at Cocker Rock, had relatives that played there or knew anything about the team. A 90 plus year old ex-player named Oki McDermott came to my rescue with hints of information about some of the players, their country of origin, as many of the European refugees and immigrants worked on the farm, as it was known and still known and the scores of brothers and cousins that played together as well as the generations that passed through the club. All the players worked on the farm in one way or another. I learned that they were called the Metropolitan Farm Herefords, named for the famous bovine that were raised on the farm, as were sheep, horses and other livestock. And just like the cattle, the Herefords were red and white. It was meant to be a team song, but it took until the week before the event. So this was like months, like over a year's lead up to this project. And the week before the project, um, I found out that there actually was a song uh, before I got some lyrics. Everyone else i would spoken to up to that point was certain that one did not exist. It was while I was piecing together this history that I became acutely aware of the stigma that still existed when discussing Werribee and uncovered examples of social and economical disadvantages linked to the postcode. Am I dropping? I am. Sorry. There we go. Okay. Am I still going? Should I just hold it? That might be easier. You've got a face. I've got a what? Not here. Alright.
2: Thank you very much. Sorry
1: guys. ruining my timing. Okay. Um there were even historical accounts of the Cockerock Hereford cattle being banned from competing at the Melbourne show due to the belief that the rich fertilised grass gave the Cockerock cattle an unfair advantage. <laughs> Still, t- today you mention Werribee and most Melburnians dismiss it as a stink town. Uh, I bet most of those same people are unaware that until the creation of the Werribee sewage Treatment Plant, Melbourne was widely referred to as Smelbourne, due to <laughs> our streets being awash with filth and excrement. The exclusion and subsequent isolation of all things Werribee became my point of focus when refining my project's conceptual framework. On the Outer became an exercise in exclusion and role reversal. I went to great lengths to uh, recreate the scenes of a period-accurate football match with replica woolen jumpers, field and gold umpires from the 60s, and lots of healthy mustaches. So, what I wanted uh, was when the... Because this is the first work that the audience came upon after leaving the, uh, the Information Centre the the, uh, bus of 40 plus people or the coach would roll through the security gates and they'd be rolling through the uh the fields um and the pastures of uh of Werribee treatment plant and as they rounded the corner the first thing they would see was the the red and white of the uh Herefords on the field kicking them on oh yeah sure you can put it on um and actually it's number 10. Number 10 was um, uh, the number for uh, Vernon McCain, one of the uh, elderly gentlemen that I actually got to meet and, and talk at, at length with in Werribee about his days with um, the uh, Metro Farm Herefords. And so as the bus would pull up, they would, they would the players would be on the field and they were once the, the bus would pull up next to the pavilion, they were uh, invited to leave the, the coach. And as soon as they started to gather outside of the rooms that the Herefords would run off the field Captain here, uh, Mick, and my brother Julian were both on the team, at least two players here, would run off the field through the audience, barge their way into the rooms and shut the door in the face of the audience members. And that's when the, uh, the coach's address, address would begin. Um, and many of the audience either stood outside the window to listen to um, this big burly voice talk about the, uh, the game that was about to ensue, or they'd make their way into the visitors' rooms and listen uh, through um, the wall, which was like a three-quarter wall um, there's a huge gap, so it actually was the best um, vantage point to listen to the the, the uh, coach's address. And what I tried to do was, because I collected so much history, um, talking with so many people within Werribee, I tried to fold a lot of that into the, the coach's speech himself and talk about the, the whole, the, um, the binary us and them, um, and wanted to basically frame the artwork where the audience were the outsiders, they were the visitors, they um, were uh, the visiting team, there was even mentioned in the talk in a in speech about they can't come here on their fancy bus and they think this, you know. So there was a lot of that going on. So it was it was very much um, uh, it was a, a kind of a nod to the, the people of Werribee and the players of Werribee and the, and the culture and the community that grew up on that um, uh, on the farm, and they were front and centre, and um, and the audience all they had to go by was the the audio, the smell of the denkerub in the rooms. And then when the, the the speech was over, they were told that the, the honk of the horn from the bus meant they had to get back on again, which when they did the uh, the field umpires they, the, actually the only faces to the work really that were um, out uh, in front of the audience for a length of time were the goal umpires played by um another cousin and uh, father over there, who was one of the chattiest members of the artwork who um <laughs> yeah, there we go, and they would actually give uh, these uh, stubby holders to people as they got back onto the bus, which uh had all of the, uh, the markings of the day, including the team song and all the lyrics. And once all the, um, the audience were back onto the bus, the team song came blaring on the, uh, the PA. And that's how the bus kind of turned around and left the, the artwork with a hair of its team song playing. So that was pretty much my description of the work.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Just a couple other awesome points to mention oh, about Shane's project is yeah. that the bus came down the road and, and it's a grey dirty um, environment there's not a lot of trees it's a huge site but even from maybe half a kilometre away you see these little red dots on the field and they just sparked visually and I think the fact that the journey from there on as he suddenly realized the real game of football was taking place was incredible the other amazing thing about the work is that it had a cast of thousands, not literally, but the work actually only ran for six minutes. Yeah. So there was this lovely compression of the spectacle of the work, but in fact the, the actual work was very short. And then the, the blast of the horn, the, the audience went back on the bus and we went to the next work. Thank you very much, Shane. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> moving along the panel, I would like to welcome and introduce Bindi <clears throat> Uh And Bindi actually did two projects. Uh, She was so inspired by the site, she needed to do two different responses to it. But Bindi's work was also amazing in that she was just in the process of delivering her second child. So not only did she pull off two works, she did it um, through an incredible feat of logistical balancing. Uh, So I'll pass over to Bindi to talk about um, both her video project that she developed, but also her incredible scratch and sniff cards.
3: Thank you. Thanks, David. Um, I think I kind of approached... um my work from a couple of different angles. The first was through my Indigenous heritage which is kind of the natural angle to begin with. My um, my heritage is Wadawurrung and that is actually my traditional uh, country and so it was kind of my first thought as I went into the site um, to look at it from that perspective and and of course, from that perspective, it was amazing. And I was fortunate enough to also be doing a six-month residency there through uh, Wyndham Council as well. And I had this kind of access to this amazing place um, that is huge, bigger than Malta, and I could just go in there on the weekends by myself and drive around and I could spend hours in there. And it kind of just felt like it was mine. Mm. And I d- quickly developed this sense of ownership over it myself. But the more time that I spent in there, the less, for some reason, the less I was interested about the, the kind of Aboriginal aspect and more interested in how it was inspiring me, mostly through nostalgia. And I think for a lot of people that's what happened. There was this kind of nostalgic aspect to the site. Firstly, because I... Um, grew up in Melbourne, and so like like you, I kind of uh, always knew it as the poo farm and Werribee as this kind of place that um, was where the poo farm was. And, and so the biggest thing that came across to me, of course, was smell. And as you go around the site, there are certain areas in which you can't smell anything, but then there are certain areas in which the smell is overwhelming. Um, And for me, particularly being pregnant at times, it was really, really full on. (laughs) I would hop out of the car and it was like (laughs) Um, And then the other thing that really kind of made me feel something was this idea that I was allowed into something that is completely off limits to everybody else. You know, like a prison, it has this kind of, sexy I, sexy kind of mystique to it, it's like nobody gets to go in and what's actually in there and it reminded me of my childhood and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory um, and I felt like that, I was exploring this kind of chocolate factory where, and particularly from the original movie where there was this place that was so exciting to children and you wanted to get in there desperately but there was this dark undercurrent and once I kind of had this feeling and these thoughts about um, the treatment plant that's all I could think of was that I was kind of living within the chocolate factory (laughs) and so my work then stemmed out of that inspiration and the first thing that I made was um, scratch and sniff cards Uh, And I think I really wanted to mess with people and I, in the same way that the Chocolate Factory did in the movies, um, you know, with the the wallpaper particularly that you would scratch and sniff and it would have different amazing flavours. And so the other thing that excited me was that I was more interested in the industrial side of the plant as opposed to the natural side. In some ways, they were the bits that I found the sexiest with the big plants and the... um, the ponds that are covered and the methane capturing yeah. and there was in particular one big plant that what's it, What's the official name of that plant? I call it the D-Stink plant. Oh, the Odour odor odor Control, the odor control, control facility. facility and so because I spent so much time there myself I just renamed everything and had all these <laughs> names and um, and so the first site that I engaged with was the D stick plant and I created a scratch and sniff there. And that's where they capture the methane and they convert it into, um, there's some bacteria in the plant that eats the methane and takes the smell away. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. And so I kind of created this scratch and sniff there that when you scratched it, you would smell chocolate. Was that chocolate? Cinnamon. Gingerbread. That was, uh, cinnamon. cinnamon. Yeah. cinnamon. Yeah.
0: It was cinnamon.
3: Thank you. Cinnamon. We went through a number of different options, but cinnamon was what we settled on. And so I think... I had friends of mine go on the tour and they were scared of my scratch and sniff cards. <laughs> they thought I was going to make them smell horrible smells. But I wanted to kind of make different associations. And then the second part was the uh, the ponds where all the sludge is um, gathered and where they capture methane to turn into electricity. Yeah, and so the whole plant is powered by methane electricity. There's no actual electricity going into it, which is an amazing fact and i created another scratch and sniff card for there which was chocolate um, and so people are looking at this sludge and all of this stuff but smelling chocolate um, and then the th- the second work that i did was a video piece uh, and i managed to get my husband to come in with me because i needed to film and <clears throat> and we drove around filming the site and i created a video that was reminiscent of the chocolate river boat ride from Willy Wonka when they kind of go in and everything speeds up and it gets a bit crazy and a bit dark. Um, and so I kind of created this abstract style video of the site <laughs> that was inspired by by that. Um, yeah, I think that's it.
0: That's it, thanks, Mindy. Thank you. The We all had to go and do tours um, and we did a number of trips through the plant and I think one of the things that Bindi picked up on were the aerators and she was talking about the chocolate churners, but they were these incredible 1960s industrial churners, they are huge, there must have been about 60 of them in a pond maybe one kilometre long by about 800 metres wide. And it is just like this incredible chocolate churning facility. Um, unfortunately, it didn't quite have the smell of the chocolate no. churning facility. But um, again, that site was really particular. So you saw them in the distance and you looked at the card and then you scratched it. So yeah, it was great. All right, it's moving right along. Uh, I'd like to welcome and introduce Megan Evans to talk about her project.
2: Um, well, I live in Werribee, so I've been the, um, the recipient of all those jokes about Werribee when I moved there um, 15 years ago. And um, I knew the plant when I moved there. I thought oh, the, I really want to be able to do a project on the plant. And the first time I went out there was actually a little bit before we all went out as a group. And um, and I knew immediately when um, when um, David asked me to be involved in the project what I wanted to do, and it was the the water tower. And the water tower is this amazing... It's really beautiful, actually. To me, it's really beautiful. It's a, um, a 19th-century um, bluestone construction that holds a big metal water tank on the top of it and um, it's got all these sort of arched doorways that are filled in and it used to be in East Melbourne just opposite where the Australian Catholic University is now and it was the very first collection point for water in Melbourne and so I took that as a starting point and saw it because a lot of my work is on um, the impact of colonisation so my work asks the question what, how do you take personal responsibility for the impact of colonisation and I ask it from my own perspective because my ancestors were um, colonisers in the early 1800s and so I took that from the perspective that that water tower was enabled the, the, um, the growth of colonisation to happen because if they hadn't have had access to clean water because by that stage they'd already polluted the, the Yarra wouldn't have been able to be the growth of colonisation so it was symbolic in a way so i took that as the um, the starting point for my work and i um, did a sound piece that was mostly running water because the um the inside the tower these great big large pipes were four large pipes that had normally would have had water rushing down them so i created this sound effect of of water which is really just water running down my drain pipe at home <laughs> And, um, and um, I also included occasionally different sort of quite creepy sounds like gunshots in the distance and the sound of a, um, of a song which was um, a waltzing Matilda that was played on one of those little uh, miniature sound things that you play in music boxes. And so that was sort of a creepy environment in there and then inside, in all the different arches, there were sort of white um, uh, wooden... Panels, and on each white wooden panel, there were twelve of them. I included all these little miniature museological installations of Victorian objects, and um, lots of red beads. And I also included a whole lot of red beads coming out of the Furfy water tank, which was also outside the water tank. And um, so it was sort of a very um, atmospheric environment where people went in um, with without really knowing what was in there, and. Um, And and, the other thing, the other element was there were two... There was a a panel on the outside of the water tank that was a historical, a sort of roughly contemporary... I think it was probably in the um, 80s it was written, a contemporary descriptor of of what the water tank was, which described it as um, something that was, you know, this wonderful thing, this wonderful um, piece of construction that was built in the the early 1800s. And so I did a, a, a replica panel which talked about the impact of that, of colonisation. I had a map of all the massacres in Victoria and I had a whole lot of, um, a a quote that was actually a very potent quote by someone from that era who was a settler and who wrote about the fact that, um, what what was the word he used, Um, that it it was widely known, I can't remember the exact words, it was widely known by everybody at that era, that um, if you would never be able to obtain land as a settler unless you were willing to confront the fact that you had to um, shoot and murder on large scale the Indigenous population. So that's what my work was really responding to. And it was sort of interesting because people would come in and many of them didn't actually read the panels and so they'd go in and they'd walk around and they'd find this sort of slightly gothic, slightly creepy environment... And then they'd come out and then they'd read the panels. And then there were other people who read the panels first and then went in. So it was sort of an interesting response to the work. So um and people came to my work after having seen Shane's and um it was sort of a really interesting counterpoint because they'd seen this whole sort of more contemporary historical piece which was much more playful but also quite challenging and confronting in the way that you were, you know, you were resisted as an audience, you weren't allowed in. Um, And then they came to my piece, and then after my piece, they went on to Catherine's piece, which was also historical. So the three of us all all sort of responded in a way to Cockerock and the township in Cockerock. I think that's it.
0: Thanks, Megan. And Megan's done the segue for me in, in bringing Catherine Bell into the conversation, and Catherine's project... Took place very close, in close proximity. So, in, in Croc Rock itself, there's really only three main structures beyond the footy oval the water tower that Megan chose to work in, and the old swimming pools, which were in a state of abject uh, disrepair. There's two of them a children's pool and an adult pool. And next to it, immediately next to it, were the change rooms, uh, again, which um, had been pretty much left to rot since they were last used in the early 70s. Um, so, Catherine, tell us about your project.
4: Well, I was really drawn to the swimming pools because I grew up in Queensland. So a lot of my childhood relates to, you know, the the public pool um, and, you know, what that represents, which is sort of community and leisure and and pastime and relaxation. And the the pools to me, I think, um, I knew that that, as David said, they were in this abject state of disrepair. They were like this derelict site that I felt compelled to sort of resurrect the the children's pool. And I'd found some footage in the archive at uh, the Werribee plant, which was about uh, 54 seconds of uh, footage from the 1940s and 50s. So the pool was actually created in the 1940s. So there was this really beautiful Um, black and white footage of children swimming in the children's pool and then I juxtaposed that with a 1950s um, bit of footage. It lasted not so long and it had a uh, big bang sort of swing soundtrack from the 40s that went along with it so it was a sort of backdrop of this sort of festive burlesque type music Um, and I guess the the idea I had this sort of idea of this sort of black humour of filling the pool with this effluent water, so it was treated water, so you couldn't actually swim in the pool, but it was very inviting when you looked at it because um, I thought that, you know, you think of a children's pool and it's pretty close to treated water because it's <laughs> a mixture of chloride and urine and you know what. So I quite like that sort of humorous element of creating this sort of oasis amongst this sort of swamp-like um, sewage plant, which I imagined that the, the families would have really, you know utilise, and when you see the footage, there's often like 40 or 50 people, and I always have this phobia about public pools, because it's like swing with people you don't know, you know, strangers and all your bodily fluids are sort of intertwining in the pool, and it's you're sort of in there to get refreshed, but you're not really refreshed, because you come out with chlorine and stuff so all of that was sort of factoring in my mind as I was sort of resurrecting this children's pool, and I like this idea of sort of public art that's ephemeral, and you sort of experience, you have this discovery of going down the rabbit hole, and there was this footage projected in the back of the change room and it was like this multi-sensory space because the people would walk into the change room and it had this really pungent smell of like compost because there was all of these (laughs) rotting leaves and you know possum poo and rat poo and you know they'd found like a 10 meter snake in there just before we'd sort of set up the show so there was all these vermin living in this space and so the footage was sort of projected on the back wall and you came into that space and it was like you're going into this porthole into the sort of time warp of where this I I guess the 40s and 50s I imagine it because that's sort of my parents age of this really sort of utopian time that's sort of you know carefree and you know simplistic and so I really like this idea of you come into the space and as a viewer you would you know experience the era and I think as an artist working in a sort of a public art um Intervention that you want you want the viewer to come away with some sort of understanding of the community that was there. But also as an artist, you want to leave your sense of the lived experience in that space. And I was sort of reflecting on it today and thinking how um, there was also this sort of subsidiary show at the Wyndham Art Gallery. And I remember Cam said, oh, you know, you've got to ring up the, you know, the the, the contractor at the, the Werribee site to talk about the colour of paint you want to use in the pool. And and I thought, oh no, okay, I'll ring him up and he didn't answer the phone straight away and I left this really long-winded message about the colour of blue that I wanted and it was just this full-on erotic rave about the colour of blue. I was going, you know, I want I want it to be like this sort of pastel blue that has a mixture of white in it but I don't want it to be like the Olympic pools you see in the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games, you know, because you know, that's a darker pool and it's indoors and it's an outdoor pool so I want it to sort of be like this Miami Vice sort of Gold Coast type, put it, sort of feel of a pool of the blue and I want it to be like a, you know, a, like a sort of a sky blue because the sky is reflecting on it with a bit of sort of sapphire and it mixed with a sort of chalky white because remember when you're in a public pool as a child and you walked in there and you sort of like felt that chalkiness of the bottom of the pool. I want that sort of effect and it went on for about 10 minutes. I'm thinking, oh my God, this contract is going to think I'm such, you know, an erotic sort of, you know, artist talking about this colour of blue. But then I thought, it's amazing how a colour can have an effect on you and a swimming pool and experience of a swimming pool as a child can have this effect on you when you're growing up. And I thought, that's that's the sort of feel I want the viewer to experience when they go and view the site, as well as looking at the footage. And, you know, I didn't want it to be too heavy-handed with the nostalgia, but at the same time, you know, I sort of hear... I listen to my parents talk about this really simplistic time and I had this footage of children from that time, so I wanted to convey this, I guess, this sort of, um, you know, sense of the community with it, but also the experience of working in art, art, as an artist on that site was that we sort of created a community as well because, you know, as artists going there and we would often go on to many site visits, like you really, I really felt like I connected and bonded with the staff there in terms of talking about the place and I had a lot of... Um, uh, dialogue with the uh, archivist there Paul uh, Bellasoni you know because he helped me um, collate the footage so i felt like through that project i don't only collect um, connected with the community at that particular point in time because i was looking at that sort of 1950s and 40s time frame of when the pool was being used because that's the footage that i had but i was also creating a sense of community through the Um, staff that I was working with and and obviously the curators and other artists Um, so I really like that sort of uh, subsidiary aspect of the project in terms of a um, yeah like an experience as an artist on the project Um, yeah so that's I really have to say. Oh, do you spear Do you want to come up Thanks, here? To, oh, no, we can go like... Oh, oh. we can do the... No, I can, no, I can certainly vouch for... that. I'm, yeah, not, I'm, not, for I'm not
5: high enough.
0: Catherine uh, was yeah. very neurotic about the colour blue. I can certainly <laughs> vouch for that. Um, but I, I think one other thing, Catherine, just I know that you won't be able to reply, but we'll come back to you, is the contrast between her modified children's pool, which was pristine, it had been perfectly cleaned, it had been painted and filled with water, and the adult pool, which had dirt and grime and, and rot. It was the contrast, in a way, between... The children's pool and the adult pool that also made the work incredibly profound because the viewing station that the audience could see the pool from uh, was equidistant between the children's pool and the adult pool. So it had this lovely connection between the old and the and the present. All right. Thank you, Catherine. Um, Spiros has joined us on stage. Welcome, Spiros. Hi. hi. <laughs> Spiros Panagracus' project uh, was the very first work. And just by way of a very small introduction, it took place in the Information Centre, which is this kind of incredible modernist building. And I think when we did our first tour, Spiros was incredibly excited about the sort of retro-modernist style of the information centre, which also has a number of displays. Uh, there's there's old um, water displays from the Melbourne Museum that are there. So it actually functions as a sort of information centre for, for children mostly. But um, Spiros's interest in that particular site sparked early on, and he, he continued to work through it. So Spiros, talk us about that work.
5: Uh... Hi. Um, So, my work was titled Scarecrow. Um, And in a way, there are multiple elements to the project that collide and in some ways don't make sense. So, I I guess there's a difficulty in trying to um, explain this in a kind of talk. But what I'll do is I'll unpack the separate elements... Um, And I guess first you can kind of start with my observations regarding the site. So as David said, I was really interested in the kind of late modern architecture. It felt very derivative of, say, something like a Frank Lloyd Wright. But even though it was kind of built in 79. um, I was kind of interested in how the foyer um, of this space is also the kind of administrative wing of the treatment plant and, um, and how organised... Um, how this is a space of organisation, how this is a space of the organisation of labour. Um, and what really... Um, what I really was interested in when I was... Um, when I was visiting the site, was how all the workers were wearing high vis vests. So when you, um, if you work at the site, you have to wear a high vis vest um, for OHS reasons. So I was kind of interested in the high vis vests. I was interested in this as a space of the administration of labour. Um, and on one of the I didn't go out into the field very much. Um, I went once or twice. And when I saw the, um, there were these bird perches um, out in the field and these bird perches were for the pied cormorant and they were breeding perches. And I later found out that these breeding posts weren't very successful. And I kind of liked that as kind of like this idea of sexual dysfunction. so let's put that aside for a moment and then there's um, um, and then the the foyer itself is a space of lots of infographics and logos so um, there's a huge model um, primarily made out of um, um, different shades of blue perspex which describe the whole sewerage system of Melbourne and this used to be out in um, Spotswood and it's a huge model of the sewerage system and tries to make sense of the complex system um, that it is. Um, And also there are all these banners, these kind of um, corporate banners that you can kind of get at Officeworks really easily. Um, um, You know, um, talking about the Western Treatment Plant and what was interesting that, you know, like every organisation has one now. So I kind of was interested in that as well. So what I did for my particular work was I kind of wanted to what kind of work against or with some of these elements so the way I responded to these separate elements was um, I made um these dressing gowns um, and I mean it was just kind of fortuitous I'm learning how to sew at the moment and the dressing gown is like the 101 you know like first project I was like um and so i was making these dressing gowns and i was like going oh wow these you know like it's about kind of leisure the dressing gown you know like it's um it's 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 not about work you don't wear the dressing gown to work and so i i I was going okay that's my starting point i want you know um i want you know me and um Justine McDessie and um, Jimmy Nuttall and Aaron Warren, who were my helpers on the days, on the two Saturdays, to be wearing these dressing gowns. And instead of the dressing, the dressing gowns were made out of drill. So I guess what I wanted to kind of communicate was that the drill, it was kind of like, the drill is about like overalls and jeans and the kind of attire that you'd wear to the studio to make something. But I was kind of taking seriously the kind of idea of leisure. And um, and I guess I, uh, in that way I was kind of working against that this is a space of um, productivity and, um, you know, something being kind of rational and explained in the infographics and the kind of models that were in the space. And I kind of, in some ways, just didn't want to make sense. And I, I kind of wanted to take seriously and kind of work at um, the idea of um, something being um, lethargic and leisurely. So... I guess me and uh, my two helpers on each day, we we um, made these. Um, we did a couple of. We did quite a few things actually, but we just did it in a way that <coughs> I didn't organise anything. I just brought all this stuff on. Bo- <coughs> on both of the Saturdays, <coughs> I brought. Uh, um, it <coughs> oh God, this never happens. Wow, yeah, it's come really interesting. Cheers, thanks. Uh, <coughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, I made these um, models, these scaled models of the um, of the breeding posts, and we just constructed them throughout the day. <coughs> I also brought in a. <laughs> this is so interesting. Yeah, <coughs> no, 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 it's just. Odd. Um, I um, so there was the the models of the um, breeding post, and also we brought in these like tarpolins, and obviously there's a whole lot of. it's are not tarpolins. They're like really high tech. I don't even know what the words are, but like they kind of cover up the the sewerage. These you know high tech kind of um, plastic covers. Yeah. That. That. that so. Oh, they are taps, Okay. All right. So. I I brought in these huge tarps. And what I wanted to do with the tarp was to um, smock them. And so smocking is this um, type of embroidery that um, puckers and bloats and makes fabric decorative. And um, so I I essentially just um, smocked um, the tarpaulin and we had lunch and we had a picnic
0: And I guess that's (laughs) Betty. Some serious steam cleaning of the carpet as well, Spurus. I don't know if you mentioned the steam cleaning. Yeah, the steam cleaning. cleaning. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. I particularly (laughs) like the steam cleaning. We steam cleaned the carpet. Yeah. Folks, I'm going to open it up to conversation in a moment, but I um, am conscious that Tayshia's not here and Cameron Bishop is... um, Uh, he's going to unfold her extraordinary project, uh, which was, in, in a sense, I'm trying to describe how we would put it into words. It was like a cosmic poo opera.
2: Yeah. That,
0: would that be fair, team? Would that, would that get close to it? And it took place in the, on the sewage ponds itself with a cast of about four or five performers in these extraordinary David Bowie-esque early 70s costumes uh, where the bus drove through and, and these series of activities took place. But, Cameron, I'm going to pass it to you to try and unfold that one.
6: That's um, going to be a pretty difficult thing to do, thanks, David. But um, anyway, I, I was I was prepared to some degree because David uh, was well at, at two p.m. I think this afternoon rang me and said, "You're going to have to take control of this event because I'm in Auckland and the plane's running late." Mm-hmm. So I did actually prepare some some notes, and I particularly about Tasha's work. So I might refer to those a little, but I, I would say about the project generally is that there were a number of stakeholders in, involved. Uh, they being Melbourne Wa- Water first and foremost, Deakin University, which initiated the event alongside Wyndham City, um, particularly particular members of at, at, um, at, at the arts and culture unit there. So to the Wyndham Community Cultural Centre, uh, or um, Foundation, uh, as well as Creative Victoria, and there was one other that escapes me, if anyone can remember, that'd be great. But I think they should be acknowledged, not just for the, the various interests that they represented and actually put pressure on us to um, to manifest in the project, but also for the fact that it made for some very delicate curatorial work, and at times I felt like I was more of a diplomat than a curatorial driver, which was David's responsibility in the project. But uh, from blue paint to uh, cosmic poos in the middle of the, the aerators, which is a very dangerous area of the, the, the facility, it was constant negotiation with this, um, this, this large scale and what was, Public, but now private, utility, which basically takes care of a lot of Melbourne's waste, um, our shit, and it's why we wind up the windows as we we drive we drive by. But um, no, you
2: don't. <laughs>
6: Not even no that's right, exactly. <laughs> it's the it's actually the um, the market gardens that surround the plant that, that create that that scent and that smell. So. You can you can take that as gospel uh, you can take it as science or as something that the people that work there believe um, I'll leave it up to you Tasha noble's project was called patch passage and it was the um it was at the southern eastern edge of the of the bus tour or the plant and, and it uh, uh, kind of almost capped the the bus tour her project took place at the the aerator ponds as mentioned which is a technology that removes nitrogen and helps oxygenate the sewage. The actual journey through the landscape to get from the odour control facility, which is where Bindi's work was, through open paddocks and fields to the pondage technologies gives you the impression of moving into a post-apocalyptic kind of landscape, which Tasha took full advantage of. There were long negotiations around the work due to exp- its proximity to the aerators off of which, if the wind was blowing in the wrong direction, Sewage in about its third stage of treatment would be sprayed onto anybody nearby. The work was choreographed to the, to the movement of the bus. The fantastical characters, as David's kind of alluded to, um, uh, that Taisha had the performers inhabit were made from old gas suits that Melbourne water donated to us and which Tasha adorned with, adorned with sequins, glitter and other, other materials so they became like kind of disco camp, disco astronauts. There was this large, inflatable, cosmic, scatological object, basically a large poo that you encountered as you entered this site. It was then that the other suited characters moved in concert with the bus to rehearse, make public and celebrate the production of excrement using glitter, which was removed, removed, literally, from one of the suited performer's rear ends. (laughs) This project is hard to explain, but she used these fantastical figures to actually bring us back into a very human dimension, the nature of sewage and where it comes from. Um, And it was from there that we travelled back up the road and back towards the Discovery Centre, where we encountered one last one last small project, which was a a desultory figure sitting in an old Pebble bus stop from the 1960s with his Hereford's jumper on, uh, possibly drinking a beer, listening to the radio, and hanging his head in uh, abjection at the fact that his team had probably lost. (laughs) And that was that, that. it was back to the, the Discovery Center after that.
0: Thanks Cameron folks i'm conscious that there may be some curious um thoughts going on in people's minds about this project particularly for those that didn't see it um there are many people here that did but i think it'd be a great opportunity to open it up i'll give cameron said he'll he'll roam in the audience and you can use this mic to ask questions but um particularly interested in in responses to either a the individual projects or b the challenges of trying to make public art projects that are ephemeral that are temporary Uh, public art projects that are engaging in a site like the Melbourne Water Treatment Site, which is obviously a government enterprise, and a site that has very rich and complex histories. So let's not kid ourselves. As Cameron said before, uh, we were engaging regularly in high-end cultural diplomacy just to try and push some of the projects through. And I think that, again, is, is the staple material of what we do in public art, is how do we negotiate stakeholders and how do we take people with us because artists are wanting to push the envelope and, and make very challenging and, and exciting statements. And stakeholders are often very anxious about the nature of that, partly through security and, and, and engineering factors and safety factors, but also through the fact that they have a, a very particular sense of the meaning of that site. So um, if anyone has questions, please raise your hand and I'll get Ken to bring the microphone out.
2: Um, thanks very much for a very stimulating discussion. Um, I'm just wondering if any of you can reflect on the contemporary kind of significance of the plant. For example, who are the people who work there today, and is there kind of this same stigma or class connotation or kind of sense of ostracisation amongst those workers, or perhaps how is this sort of corporatisation of that attempted to sanitise it and kind of make it a more palatable enterprise? So it's kind of, yeah, some of those dynamics you reflected on in the past, but in a contemporary kind of context.
0: Thanks a lot for the question. Um, By way of answering it, I think there are 23 full-time employees there now. There used to be 700. So immediately there is a very small group of people. And one other other thing that I could say by way of being slightly elliptical in answering your question is that the majority of the staff have been there for nearly 30 years. So this is an organisation where people don't leave. Um, They love that place. Uh, They love their job. it's no longer clearly a kind of blue-collar working-class space because most of the industry has been industrialised to the point where I think many of the staff are engineers. Uh, so it's, it still has, you know, legacies of, 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 the, of the work in the past. But, yeah, I think it's a very different staff profile. Uh, but what definitely struck me, I don't know whether any of the artists would want to pick up on this, was that the workers there are incredibly passionate about the site. And they're very conscious about the stigmatisation of the smell and the poo and what it means to be there. So they were at great pains consistently to tell us, as Cameron said, that there is no longer any smell at Werribee. Um, The smell is coming from the market gardens because they have the Zoda control facility and and whatever. And to a certain extent, that's true. Uh, But to a certain extent, I'm not completely convinced that that's true. Uh, but at the same time, they were hugely supportive, and I think everyone on the stage would agree that the support that we got from Melbourne Water in terms of being able to, to access history, Catherine getting access to the video, um, Shane getting incredible access to records and histories about the football team, uh, they were really interested in how a project like this might be able to play a role in reshaping people's perceptions of what is largely a pejorative sense of the space and to that extent i think the people on the stage did an extraordinary job in doing that but at the same time let's not kid ourselves there are some tensions in that site and art is not the panacea to smooth everything over in fact i think a number of the artists were interested in opening up some of the issues around conflict um megan uh, is a great example of that so yeah i think overall i would say that melbourne water were incredibly supportive uh and there's as i said a very small number of them still working there so it's probably a classic example of the de-industrialisation process at work, yeah.
2: And and, and I'd also comment on that in that because um, I live in Werribee, and it doesn't smell, just so you know. <laughs> and um, uh, but um, it was also the same impression I got a lot of the time was from from the staff was their sort of almost anxiety about how do how do we overcome? And also myself when I moved to Werribee, everyone. You know, I said Werribee. Why do you want to live in Werribee? for? it's a sewage farm, and and that's the sort of the, sti- the 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 stigma that still exists, which Shane dealt with very very well. The stigma still exists for people, but it is changing. However, I think a lot of the staff were very very keen on this project because they saw it as a way to open up what the the beautiful things about the plant. Because yeah. the plant isn't just the the raw sewage; it's also all the ponds. It's actually it's got a Ramsar, um, um, uh, what do you call it, a Ramsar listing, it's um, whatever, it's a Ramsar, Ramsar heritage listing and it's also, it's got the biggest number of water birds next to Kakadu yeah. and that flows over into that whole region. I live on the river in Werribee and the water birds are just extraordinary um, in that area as a result of the sewage farm being there. There's a lo- lot of really beautiful, beautiful, like... Yeah. When I went out there i I was just stunned by the beauty of the place more than the the little part of it that is the raw sewage is the beauty of the place is extraordinary
5: i mean I think the i mean the whole thing is really it's a beautiful sight like mm. the even i mean the industry the landscape like when I first saw you know these huge kind of industrial churners that are <laughs> you know how how many meters high like yeah. you know yeah, 30, 10, meters 10 meters high and it's, it's just these it's amazing industry that you just don't drive by you know um, <laughs> um very regularly and when I saw the the bird perches, I was just like you don't have to do anything to that you just take it it's just like it's just um you know it's like it's a sculpture in its own right. You don't need, need to compete with it. You just leave it alone and you put it somewhere else, like, <laughs> or something.
3: Also, I think the staff, that like, because I spent quite a lot of time with the staff there too, and the more that I fell in love with the place, the more excited they got, I noticed. They just kind of wanted to do more and more for me as much as they could, anything I wanted, because as I developed this passion, it just echoed their passion, and they appreciated that.
1: Because yeah, I got a request. This is ridiculous. I actually got a request from um, uh, from the staff. It was passed through. So it's like those um, stubby holders you've got. Um, do you reckon we could have maybe a couple of dozen of those? Because <laughs> I think in the in the in the canteen, there's all these guys walking around with their stubby holders and and, and whatnot. Um, I quite I quite liked the. I also lamented, I think, the loss because I actually got to speak with uh, quite a lot of people who either grew up on the farm or had relatives that lived on the farm. And so many stories that I couldn't fold back into the work. It's just, there's, it's still got, I think it's got rooms to just keep going and going, but it was that the the, the, um, the member of staff who was in charge of the, the history of the plant knew a fraction of what I came across. And it wasn't because it was completely lost because I ended up treating it as such at the start, but it just came down to talking with people who were from Werribee. And I actually got all these calls out of the blue every so often. Oh, are, you the, are you the guy that's uh, asking about the Herefords and such I've been meeting Nicole here for a while and so you know my brother played for this my cousin went to where and played for the Tigers and my my mum used to wash the jumpers of the team and, and all this sort of thing so it was but everyone seemed to be around the age of late 80s early 90s and um, well more, more than one occasion I had uh, someone say well if you've been asking these questions six months ago there would have been more people around to tell you um, and so I seem to have caught right on the cusp of these oral histories, which I was able to try and utilise. And I'd, I would have liked to have folded more if I could, um, but there was some tension there because of this, um, this Willy Wonka gated um, community, this, this facility going on that no one could get into. A number of the, um, the original residents who I spoke to um, lamented the lack of access because they used to be able to just go straight down to the water from the, from Werribee town or, you know, Werribee Major itself jump on their bikes or, or their buggies or in the car and drive down and have a bonfire on the beach and all of these things they, they uh, could no longer get access to. Um, so there's so much more, I'm not quite sure what the point is I'm trying to make. It was just, it was just, yeah, it was just so, it was so very, very rich. And yet we had like five minutes to kind of get across mm. something that was quite significant. So um, it was a challenge, but it was also very rewarding. So, oh yeah. We should probably say thank you to you guys as well. Thanks for asking yeah, us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Mm,
6: yeah, Cheers.
2: Um, just one thing I'd like to say too is, it, and it is an acknowledgement of the of the curators, is the beauty of the way the bus tour w- worked, and um, the 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 way they planned it was brilliant. And what also happened was there there was such a lovely mix of both the old residents from Werribee, old, old people who'd lived on in Cockerock and also local Werribee residents and then Melbourne art scene people and this beautiful sort of interaction between those two groups of people on the bus tours. So it was a re- that was a real delight as well that it sort of had this fantastic mix of audiences.
0: Thanks, everyone. Um, I think it was a, sounds like a really great project. I didn't get to see it. Um, but what I was going to ask um, about was were two questions um, for you personally as artists and your practice and also the legacy of the project. I just wondered, um, in the few months that have, since the project, if you've had time to think about has anything come of this that's actually affected your practice in any way? And also, um, what do you think... Uh, the legacy is for the Werribee treatment plant in the future, what sort of effect do you think that this might have had that might generate something or do something in the future?
2: Well, uh, well, one of the things is that there's going to be another another treatment project. The, 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 the Werribee treatment plant loved it and looks like there's going to be a second rendition of it, which is fantastic. So... And, in terms of my own practice, it just um, it was just uh, it, w- it was very moving for me the way watching people because I went on the bus tour on a number of occasions because I was videoing it, and it was really moving for me to see people respond to the work. And because you got you know when you have a show in a gallery, you're there on the opening night, but after that you you don't really see people's response to your work unless you have a comments book. But it was great to watch people go in in a very short space of time because it was literally like a you know six to ten minute go at this piece of work people go in come out and then see their responses was that was really really um, wonderful for me as an artist to get that feedback immediately and also to have you know nearly 500 people see your work yeah. in you know in a short space of time was really great as well
6: what what was fascinating for me in that 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 time between the two iterations of the, the projects on the 14th of November and the 21st was the way some of the works evolved and didn't remain static, like, like for Spiro, something something different emerged on the 21st uh, as opposed to what happened on the 14th. And with Shane's project, he was doing five performances during the day. What actually happens to that that work as something that you might be able to describe in very dis- static ways using language or to photograph and document, but what happens to the sensations and feelings around that work of the performers themselves as much as what they're giving off to the, the spectators. Um, so to broaden that out to uh, the, the next iteration of the project, um, it, it was something, it, it is something to be considered, but... It's also something very difficult to, to say no to, considering all of the stakeholders were, were quite impressed with, with what they saw, um, from uh, Wyndham City and the councillors that came on the bus trips, uh, to, well, the Art Cognoscenti that, that came out from Melbourne, uh, and to the people from the Wyndham Community Cultural Foundation, who had a, a very particular stake because um, they comprise of uh, older, an old, the older generation from Wen- Werribee who are interested very much so in the, the history of the area and the people. So they really connected with, with Shane's project and also Catherine's. And one of the, the more, um, I guess, uh, touching scenes to come out of those, those two runs of the project was... or oh, touching stories was... Um, a woman who said, "I met my husband in this in this very pool, and that's a, that's a rare kind of thing that art I think art has the capacity to, to generate. So um, hopefully the next run won't just be a dead run, but it will expand on the possibilities and the, the stuff that these these six actually presented. Um, any more questions?
2: Thanks. Um, I went and loved it. My question is: Given that you're going to do it again, uh, are you giving any thought to having community engagement about an expression of their response to the treatment plant, or are you going to keep it to the to the just a, a limited number of artists? Uh,
6: I, I I don't want to give give too much away about what what. Might happen next time. Um, uh, we are having said that the structure will be slightly different, and it and it will um, include uh, the River Precinct, which is which is exists between the Discovery Centre and um, the Art Gallery. We want to activate that space, so I think that certainly has the potential to to engage the the greater community in the actual pro art project itself,
1: yeah. And if I could, just, I, I was asked, well, I, I gave a talk. Um, have you mentioned uh, treated? Mm. Well, there was like a, almost like a follow-up to the, the, the treatment work that actually, um, um, Cameron was uh, curating and installed at the Wyndham Art Gallery. And I was asked to give a talk there. And, and there were um, uh, members of the Wyndham Arts Community. Was it the Wyndham Community Cultural, Cultural, Cultural Foundation. Foundation? I've got it written down here. Um, and uh, one of the questions was asked like, is, do you th- think, will this be um, available to us? Will we have access to the information, the histories you've collected that we haven't necessarily seen um, uh, in the work? And um, I know in the case of my project, there's definitely um, um, legs to take it further and turn it into something else. And, and because, like I said before, the, a lot of the, the, um, the, the oral histories I've got from people who are quite um, elderly, there's definitely an opportunity there to try and collect as much as I could to then turn it into a, another work. And just the way it's framed around sport. I didn't even mention the whole crossover between the art and the sport. There's this kind of, this really suspicious kind of crossover. I think that kind of exists where if it's like sport related, then it and it must be low art or lowbrow somehow. But the, there was something about the, um, the link to the, the football team that sparked interest in everyone we spoke to. And, um, and uh, I think it has the opportunity or the, the potential to take it further. Um, elsewhere, so um,
0: yeah yeah, okay. Folks, we might um, draw proceedings to a close, I thought I might just finish with my favourite story that I learnt in the two years um, yeah, have we, have Was there another question? Yeah. yeah, I was just following up on this last one actually, it was on the involvement in the community, I too it out there, I didn't see the show, it sounds fantastic, well done to all the speakers and so forth uh, and, and having lived out there a long time and being highly involved in the education community it's... it was a shame a lot of Schools couldn't see some of this stuff. So perhaps next time, given that you are contemplating something else and maybe other spaces are going into to to be involved, can we get some of this out to schools? Mm,
2: Great.
0: Thank you. Mm. Um, So, folks, thanks very much for coming. Can we just thank our wonderful panellists um, and speakers? Uh, very briefly, i just recount that we, we, we learned so many things about this plant that we're all experts in sewerage and engineering and the like. But my favourite cockerock story was that in the 40s and 50s, they used to put raw sewerage around the fields, so before they had the treatment um, aerators and the ponds. And what used to happen is that in the evenings, um, all of the men who worked in the fields would go back out onto the sewerage ponds and they would carefully comb the ponds looking for jewellery and gold rings and precious valuables and the women of Cockarock had the finest collections of jewelry in the whole of Australia
2: <laughs> thanks for And also for false teeth yes
0: <laughs>
2: thanks for coming yeah.